This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. For premium clip-ons, chains, sprockets, check out Renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to look back at the Aragon Grand Prix. And uh, I have to say, this was probably one of the most exciting weekends that I've remembered for a long time through the season because it all went down to the last lap. First time we've had a last lap change the lead in uh, pretty much a year. So we got a fair bit to get through on today's Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English, David Emmett, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison on the pod. And let's jump straight in with you, David. You're still actually in Aragon at the minute. You you, you just couldn't leave it. All the excitement of the weekend, you wanted to stick around for as long as possible. No, I mean, it's such a beautiful place here that we um, uh, like to hang around. And it's uh, also, it's still like, you know, sort of 28 degrees here. And at home is... 15 degrees and raining yeah it's about 28 degrees Fahrenheit here in Dublin again so uh yeah I can understand wanting to stay in Spain Adam you're obviously in Barcelona at the minute back home but not for too much longer you've got motocross and nations this weekend as well so the jet set and keeps going yeah that's right Steve I think it's the 75th motocross and nations so it's a pretty big deal uh big annual event uh the oldest team event in the uh oh, hang on let me get this right the oldest team event short circuit activity racing in the FIM canon because of course you have the ISD which has been running for years and years and years um, but the, yeah the motocross the nations is a, is a big deal so I'm over to Redbud which is uh, means a flight to Chicago so while everyone else is going the other way to Motegi I'm going I think I have to work Motegi 14 or 15 hours behind the actual race time so that's going to be an interesting experience. Are we expecting them Andorra to win again as they always do or is it not like MotoGP? Uh, no, it will be the USA. If the USA don't win, then I will fall off my chair, uh, you know, and they have to because they've had a very barren streak and, you know, being the largest nation in the world of dirt bike riders and the largest motorcycle market for dirt bikes, then really they should. So, uh, yeah, it should be like that. But it means I won't be on the, um, the Parrot Pass podcast note show. So people who are fed up of hearing my voice on Patreon will uh, will rejoice <laughs> because I will not be offering any um, input, obviously, from Japan. Yeah, there's a good chance then that we'll actually get the show named correctly, the Paddock Mass Podcast, Paddock Notes show. Yeah, we're talking about the, the Grand the Premio Animoca, the Aragon, Steve, okay? Not the Aragon Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that That's very true. That's very true. I have to say, you mentioned the... Uh, nations and uh, six days of enduro and it is that busy stretch of the year where everything seems to come to a head in all of those championships but uh neil we've still got another five rounds of moto gp left obviously you're uh in barcelona at the minute Superbikes actually go to catalonia this weekend as well so i'll actually get the chance to go for a cup of coffee with you on wednesday and then it's uh, the japanese grand prix so it's busy stretch now obviously with all the flyaways Yes, exactly. Uh, I'll be battening down the hatches because Steve English will be in town. Um, I'll be <laughs> unplugging my phone and uh, <laughs> turning everything off. Airplane mode constantly <laughs> just uh, for fear that I get in contact with you. That's fair enough. Luckily, you don't yeah. have a daughter to lock up now. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's very true. And, um, but yes, I'm actually skipping Mategi. I, uh, I, I usually don't go there. Uh, it's, it's a bit on the expensive side and it's obviously expensive to do the, the entire flyaway run of races. So, um, I can't say that I am that sad looking at the stress that some of my colleagues went through getting their visas or having to get their visas. Um, there were uh, a few nervous people that seemed like a pretty arduous process. So, um, yeah, my kind of crazy long, uh, two days of, of, of traveling uh, can wait until next week when I'm going to Thailand. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, that's also a bit of an arduous one as well. But let's kick straight into the Aragon Grand Prix weekend. And Adam, I'm going to come straight to you for your moment of the weekend. Uh, for me, Steve, it was the first race of the day. Um, it's kind of unusual to see uh, a rider in Moto3 be as dominant, as controlling as Izan Guevara was. Um, uh, I didn't actually see the post on social media but i believe he's already confirmed to be stepping up to motor 2 next year um at the moment it looks like he's going to be going up as world champion because uh dennis foggiera and also his teammate in the gas gas saspa squad uh, sergio garcia had a pretty miserable day in aragon but guevara just controlled things from start to finish i thought it was probably the best ride of the day 
Uh, and yeah, fantastic. And, you know, for a rider that's, you know, has a very kind of cheruby looking face, um, you know, seems very like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Uh, yeah, has finished off the podium only twice in the last 10 events and now firmly in control. So I thought it was a, it was a fantastic ride. And his race was 24 seconds faster than the winning time from last year's Model 3 race at Aragon, which is, um, I mean, a night and day difference. There is uh, something kind of Jorge Lorenzo-esque, I would say, about how Isan Guevara controls races from the front. And I mean, that's just an enormous jump um, from one year to the next. So it shows you what a kind of incredible job he's doing when he does get to the front and uh, sets his own pace. Yeah, I have to say, Guevara and Aragon's always special. Like, obviously, for me, I work a lot in CEV as it was in Junior GP now. And for some of what we saw from him there a few years ago, I think he won from, I think it was 20th on the grid. And uh, he did the double. So he's always been very special at Aragon. But he's a special rider as well. I remember last year, whenever he stepped up, I actually had my my money on him to beat Acosta for the championship last year. And mostly that was just down to the fact that he had much better odds. But uh, <laughs> he's a special rider that everyone from the junior GP paddock knew how good he was going to be. And this year he's actually been able to show it last year. I think and especially Neil will be able to, to remember it better than I will. But there was a lot of races last year where he was just a bit messy. And that seems to have gone this year. He's had, what, four wins, nine podiums. So he's he's pretty much been a regular in the top three all the way through the season. Yeah. 33-point lead. And uh, unfortunately for Adam, your championship hope for the season, Sergio Garcia, it's just uh, going a little bit haywire from 13th this weekend. And that's a big chunk of points to give up. Yeah, there's a bit of a meltdown, Steve. Um, and also, you know, don't forget Guevara, I think, is heading for the quadruple. I mean, that's three Grand Prix wins now in Spanish soil. So he's got uh, one more to go in Valencia, and that'll be quite a nice little box set. He's a special rider if the odds are right, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pick my uh, my moment of the weekend next, Neil, and it's another special rider because it's Pedro Acosta winning in uh, Moto2. And I thought for me, this was a really impressive performance. I thought the Moto2 race was just really good because when Fernandez gets away at the start, you kind of think this could be this could be massive for the championship. And Acosta... After only a couple of laps, he knew that he was going to get the hooks in and close him down. And he looked really strong. And it was a really impressive win from Acosta. Fernandez, he still finishes on the podium, but he only picks up three points over Ayagura, who does well in the last lap. I thought the Moto 2 race was really interesting. Yeah, it was It was an interesting race. Um, uh, I felt slightly sorry for Augusto Fernandez because he gets confirmed to join uh, Gas Cash Tech 3. Um, uh, definitely going uh, stepping up to MotoGP uh, and then Pedro Acosta basically goes and proves why Augusto has only got the one year in MotoGP before he gets replaced by uh, uh, by Acosta because that was just an outstanding ride by uh, by Acosta. Um, uh, Fernandez is really good, but you know Acosta is clearly something very special. I feel a bit extra sorry for Augusta as well, David, because one of your numbskull Dutch colleagues managed to usurp the Gas Gas uh, announcement <laughs> a day earlier by taking some pictures of an, a kind of a confidential photo shoot on the track. So um, uh, anything yeah, thought, this is this is like pit lane. If it's visible from outside, it is not private. It's a completely the fault of, uh, of 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 KTM who decided that they needed outside pictures when the uh, when the indoor pictures had, al had already been done. So no. no. Oh, this, this is it's exactly the same as in pit lane. It's when people come up and say, "No, you can't take pictures." I can if you don't want me to take pictures. Shut the garage. You know they, they, there are options for keeping your secret. Or, or take it away. Take, go and take it away <laughs> from. Uh, go and take the pictures away somewhere else. Go up to the bloody Parador and take pictures up there. That would also that would also be great. So no I, zero sympathy. I agree with the the policy against teams of brands. If you're going to show stuff, then you need to have it taken. But um, that was he could have shown a bit of professional courtesy and respect to a fellow media colleague. Nah, nonsense. You're talking about a journalist. I here, have Ed. to say, I mean, come on. If 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 you're able to keep things secret from uh, the outside, if it's visible, um, I, I should probably close the curtains then as well. But. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to come to you next then as well, Neil, for your moment of the weekend. What was it for you? <clears throat> uh, my moment of the weekend, Steve, was obviously um, the first couple of corners were um, notable for what was going on back in around sixth, seventh place with uh, Mark Marquez, Fabio Quattararo. But my moment was what was going on just up ahead 
And I had to go back and rewatch it a few times to understand exactly what had happened because obviously everyone's attention was taken by Quattararo's crash. Brad Binder's start for me was uh, absolutely sensational. Uh, tenth to second, I think, in five corners. And how he, how he managed to do that was, uh, was just a, a brilliant, brilliant piece of riding. Um, it was quite... Um, opportunist. Um, he took advantage of, I think, Alessio Spargo diving under an air bastionini at turn three to pass both of those guys. But then to have the um, the confidence and the, the aggression to then pass Jack Miller a corner later for second was uh, was remarkable. And I think it was the start of one of Bindo's best rides of the of the season, probably of his best rides in MotoGP. I mean, I don't think he had really any right to be fourth place at the checkered flag. Yeah, I think it was another one of those situations where. Aragon, a bit like what we've seen a few times in the past from KTM, whenever the grip's down, that bike does work well. Binder's always really good in those low grip conditions as well. And uh, a really impressive ride. It would have been great for him to have capped it off with a podium as it was. Fourth at the flag is still as good as we've seen from KTM for a long time. Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, yeah, I mean, Binder's, Binder's ride was just exceptional, certainly. But uh, My moment of the weekend was um, the factory Ducati garage after Anaya Bastianini won beating Pekka Banyaya uh, because they were doing their very best to look extremely pleased and happy to take 20 points and to have a Ducati win while also um, being really obviously a little bit upset that things hadn't quite worked out the way that they'd planned, and also that a fellow Ducati rider had uh, robbed um, uh, Pekka Banyai of five points, which could be very important by the time we get to the end of the, uh, the, end of the championship. Um, it's, made even, well, it's made even more complicated by the fact that uh, Grassini is the l- sort of least directly affiliated team with uh, uh, with Ducati. I mean, obviously there are Ducati people in and out of the garage and uh, and all the rest of it, but it's not like Pramac, where, which is basically, you know, the, the, the junior team. It's not like VR46, which also has, uh, you know, a, a factory bike in there. They have no hold over, over Grassini. They have no hold over Anaya Bastianini. And even better, it was the fact that Bastianini is going to be Pekka Benyaya's teammate next year. And it's also setting up an absolutely fantastic dynamic uh, for next year because um, Jack Miller's been the perfect teammate. He's been perfectly willing to help um, uh, Anaya. And, um, oh, sorry, uh, he's been perfectly willing to help her, Pekko, to help him win. And, uh, you know, Bastianini was, he's having none of that. And Bastianini is going to factory Ducati to beat Pekka Benyaya. And, and this was sort of made it really clear. Yeah, I think it was one of those situations, Dave, because obviously for me, I have to bring everything back to Top Rack versus Ray. <laughs> and uh, it was it was similar to 20, 2019, whenever you had Top... Yeah, <laughs> when uh, when you had uh, Top Rack on the Kawasaki, Johnny on the Kawasaki. And Mizano was the interesting one for me because it was basically carbon copy of what happened in MotoGP. Into turn four, Bastianini wasn't able to make the move. He made a small mistake. The exact same thing happened when Top Rack was a Kawasaki rider and he had to bail out of it and then as the season wore on he got braver and braver and realized you know what i just want to win i want to win races i want my win bonuses i want that number beside my name and he started to make the moves when he had them and this was one of those ones as well because ducati can be annoyed about whatever they want about the five points potentially lost at the end of the day bastianini did a better job he deserved to win the race. There's still five races to go. There was six races to go at the weekend, which is, you know, a huge portion of the season, a third of the season, basically. So for Bastianini, I think this was a move he had to make. He clearly waited up for lap after lap after lap. You know, he he bailed out of moves down the back straight into the last corner. He was setting Pekko up and then he picked us all by surprise with the move. It was a fantastically judged move, really good race win for him. And, you know, I don't really know why Ducati looks so ash-faced about it. They're still 10 points behind Fabio. It's not the end of the world. It was a good day for them. Maybe, Steve, it's something to do with uh, a bit of Mikdu and Repsol Honda-itis because, uh, you know, it's been five Grand Prix now where Ducati have pretty much locked things out in terms of podium finishes. I mean, apart from a couple from Maverick Bignales and, of course, Alessio Spargo at the weekend, um, a Japanese bike hasn't been on the podium since pre Assen. Um, you know, when Fabio Quattararo made the first of his, uh, uh, I don't want to say mistakes, but, you know, the first time his scorecard has taken a dent. So, yeah, Ducati came very much into a celebratory mode, it has to be seen. Um, and, you know, as you would expect, and as we said 
last at the end of last year having that amount of bikes on the grid so it's all going swimmingly for them also brad binder's fourth place i think was his second best result of the season um i can't remember it might be new dave who asked him in the debrief afterwards or maybe you neil whether that was his best ride of the year and he sort of correctly pointed out that um you know his, his riding qatar when he finished on the podium was his standout so far but that also was uh you know uh, definitely one for the memory books in 2022 uh, also, I mean, it was a fantastic ride by both Bastidini and Banya. And what I found really interesting is the fact that they uh, uh, we've been talking about how Aragon is really tough on tyres, but there was no drop for the for the front two. They were nine seconds faster than last year. Uh, but the start of the race, they were doing 48.3s, you know, like low 48s. And at the end of the race, they were also doing 48.3s, low 48s. And if you look at, uh, for example, Miller and uh, Brad Binder and Alessia Spargaro, they were all had you know six tenths seven tenths uh of a second drop uh in their pace from the beginning to the end and there was just no drop at all for the front runners which it, it's an it's remarkable progress from the bikes and from getting everything sorted so yeah i uh, that for me was incredibly impressive well let's uh, get to one of our big talking points from the weekend because obviously it flows in nicely from this and uh, speaking to everyone on Sunday night, one of the big talking points was whether or not we should have team orders at this stage of the season. Neil, what, what's your opinion on it? Well, I mean, this kind of follows on from Dave's uh, moment of the weekend, which was uh, the ashen faces which were done in the Ducati garage. Um, I think if you were writing an article and you wanted a photo for your overjoyed Ducati bosses celebrate third straight constructors title you have to choose that screenshot of them um kind of embracing each other afterwards all looking really dark and sad i mean it was like come on lads you just uh qualified locked out the front row got another one two finish i think it was the first time in history as well we had seven ducatis in the top 10 seven um so overall it was a, it was a decent day at the office but um yeah clearly they i think from that expression they they felt that Maybe Bastianini had crossed the line or, or had done something that he shouldn't have done. Certainly from Davide Tardozzi's expression, you would say it's almost something that he wasn't expecting. You know, Bastianini had broken some kind of code. Um, and it was, uh, we were obviously told back at Misano that Gigi Delinia had gone to all of the riders apart from Pecco and said, go for the win. If the win's there, go for it. But if you're with Pecco on track, don't do anything stupid and don't do anything too risky. And I don't think what, um, what Bastianini did was particularly risky. I mean, it was clean. He pressured Pecco um, and he pressured him at some points where it could have been risky. Like you mentioned, the last corner, Stevie, I think there was twice, two times before he actually made the move that he sort of shadowed him down back straight, but that's a, not a conventional place to pass in MotoGP. Um, and, uh, you know, what he did at turn seven was was fantastic, precise, clean. Um, but you think back to what... Um, Claudio Domenicali said after the, the Misano race, and he said, you know, maybe it was a bit too risky what Anea did, um, you know, on, on track. And um, it was interesting reading Matt Oxley's blog yesterday with some comments from Carlo Panat, who is Anea's team manager. He said, you know, why did Claudio feel the need to say something like that when he could have just said, we had a one-two in Misano, and that's, um, that's something to be celebrated. So I think perhaps now we could see... Um, well, I don't think so, actually. I don't think we will see team orders from Ducati in the next race or two because Inea still has a chance for the championship. But um, you get the impression that the Ducati bosses felt that he should have done something with consideration for Peko at that point in the race. Yeah, no, I mean, don't, don't you think it gets much harder now for someone in Ducati senior management to say to Grissini, right, you know, put the anchors on, you know, this is Peko's championship. He's only 10 points away after being almost 40 in the championship. I mean, that was nearly two Grand Prix distance he had away from, you know, Quattararo only a few races ago. But then also, you know, perhaps Bastianini can think, well, I, I kind of let you have Mizano. I could have attacked you. I could have been more aggressive. We both could have ended up in the gravel. I could have tried another retaliation move and I didn't. Uh, so, you know, now Aragon was mine. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a complicated dynamic, isn't it? Well, first of all, I mean, we're talking about team orders. This isn't team orders because they're not both in the same team. Um, and well, they will be next is, year. 
Yeah, but it's but there but it's not this next year yet, is it? It's this year. That's how time works, Ad. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, but uh, time. Yeah, race races are only you're only as good as your last one and all that crap, Dave. So it's uh, it's not going to be yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's only well, what it's only well, a couple it, of the, weeks, and in Valencia, is going to be wearing a different colour. Uh, yeah, but that's that's. If Digital India is speaking, going down to all of the Ducati riders and speaking to them, uh, they are all very, very aware of who is number one and who is the boss. Yeah, you listen. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. Just pointing out they are not in the same team. This is not team orders. This is factory orders. That's something else. Oh, um, semantics. Yeah, the semantics. It matters. It matters. It's very important. The meaning of words matters. Um, but I mean, for a start, I mean, my feeling, I hate team orders. I think that I, I, I don't think there should be any. I think they're extremely difficult. Um, I think motorcycle racing is, it, it's a team sport, yes, but the, the team consists of, uh, the rider and the, uh, and the people who help him, the mechanics, the crew chiefs, the, the data engineers, all the rest of it. Um, as soon as you, as soon as the light goes out, that's it. It's it's all down to the rider. Um, so I, I don't think team orders have any place in MotoGP. I also think uh, that motorcycle racers, because it is a, a, such an individual sport, I don't think they're particularly inclined to listen to uh, to team orders. I mean, we all remember uh, Jorge Lorenzo at Valencia with Andrea Dovizioso and the number of times that he got shown mapping eight. And uh, I think that they, they then started showing him the pit board and there were people on the side of the pit wall waving and gesticulating and just genuinely uh, being... And it, you know, eventually, I think Lorenzo just got bored and realised that it wasn't much he could do. So he could let, um, he could let Dovizioso through and uh, Anaya Bastianini does not strike me as the uh, quiet submissive type who will do exactly as you please uh, uh, as he's told either um, um, so I, I don't think it's going to help I think that uh, Delinia I, I think if Bastianini was completely out of it by the end of the season um, then uh, and it comes down to Valencia there's a chance that he might be willing to help uh, but you know right now there's still a long way to go he's He's just not going to. He's not even going to bother listening. He'll he'll nod politely and say yes, of course I'll help Peko, and then he'll stuff it up the inside um, uh, cleanly, as as Neil said, because it was a fantastic pass. It was very clean indeed. Um, but if he gets if he gets a chance to, for a win, he's going to take it. All of your points are more valid, Dave. If he wasn't going to be a Jacasi course rider in a in a matter of weeks. Uh, yeah, but it's important. Is, it's it's really important there because uh, when he is a Ducati Corsa rider, he's going to be world champion uh, uh, and not uh, and not Pekka Banyaya. Like he's not going to join Ducati Corsa to be you know a nice number two. That's also why, not why it was hired because they wanted if they wanted a nice quiet number two rider, they would have kept Jack Miller because he's been a perfect teammate. Uh, and Aya Bastianini is not going there. Yeah. And also w- one more thing about this because the, the other re- the the reaction of of, um, uh, of the Ducati of the Ducati team bosses in the garage also showed you exactly what they thought of the uh, uh, of the manufacturers championship. All very nice, all very uh, all very fun, but it's really completely unimportant. The only thing that matters is the riders championship. Well, it goes back to your reference on time because Bastianini might be world champion next year, but this is the prime time for Bagnaia <laughs> to get it this year. So it's yeah, but that's, uh, not, yeah, that, but that's that's not Bast- that's that not Bastianini's problem. It's just not Bastianini's problem. That is Pekka Bagnaia's problem. I just think if you're a motorcycle brand investing northward of 50 million euros each year in some MotoGP, then you you there are times when racers have to recognise their places of an, as salesmen and employees. And Bastianini, it might not seem he might seem like this ruthless kind of chap that would you know take away a front wheel and you know all in the name of victory. But uh, I think he also has the bigger picture in mind. One that necessary he's faster. To... <laughs> Yes, I think context is everything, Dave. But uh, as we know, and as you rightly pointed out, on a racetrack, a different set of emotions come into it. I think the last thing a MotoGP rider considers himself is a factory employee. It's a racer first and foremost. And, uh, that's, and that's oh, kind of the I beg to story. differ, Neil. No, I beg to differ because the, I think uh, 100% of them care about their contracts and the bonuses and whatever else is coming in. So it's, uh, I think, you know... The bonuses. Yeah. The bonuses is what he was thinking about there, Adam. <laughs> yeah, but, you know... You, Look at look at somebody like take an example of Bab Binder, you know, a rider who hasn't had the most competitive motorcycle, but is an expert in building a team and a, a real sense of camaraderie around him. Just go down to the garage and you'll see it. Or look at the you know Katie, Red Bull KTM's post on Instagram, 
and see that his kind side of, reaction of the garage when he comes into the grid. Yes, and his then take side a, of the some, garage. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't give a crap about my, uh, about Miguel uh, Oliveira's side of the garage. He cares about his. And honestly, you're completely right. It's Binder KTM, is fantastic. Dave. No, 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 it's no, no, no. KTM. It's Brad. It's it's not all KTM. It's Brad Binder's side of the garage and right. Miguel Oliveira's side of the take garage. Take Aprilia then. You know, Maverick Binyanis has been saying for a number of weeks that his job is there to help. Alleged. Yeah, because he's not fast enough yet. Just wait until next year when he is. No, we actually managed to prize a few comments out of him over the last weekend where he was looking fantastic, particularly on Friday in Aragon, that he was ready to go for the win if they were 1-2. But, you know, he's still committed. He knows his role and his obligation towards Aprilia. So. Such innocence. Different circumstances, yes. Um, I feel that you, you don't quite, uh, you're not quite recognising the burning desire that is uh, inside uh, some of these top water GP riders. Uh, yeah, but that's such a cliche, Neil. Yeah, you know, oh, blimey. <laughs> it's, yes, a race of all, like, slay their own mother for a result. I mean, get but real. But they I would. Mean, that's, I mean, that, that's very much the point. They absolutely would sell their, they would definitely sell their grandmother into slavery right. if they thought it would give them a chance, if they, it would give them a chance of a, of a win. I'll concede uh, that nine I, times I, out of ten, but I think when you're riding <laughs> for a factory like Bastini needs to doing next year, you will be incredibly <laughs> stupid to no, deny... You know, the Ducati, a first riders' championship in 15 years. I admire your loyalty. Well, I think, though, I think, though, this is where it comes down to add. This isn't a Bastianini thing. This isn't a Paco thing. This is a fact that for what, five years, Ducati's had, well, over the last three years anyway, the best bike on the grid. And they still haven't been able to win a championship. The problem isn't riders, the problem is Gigi hasn't done his job. If he's, his job is to win the championship, and like Dave said, we saw how little they think about the Constructors' Championship now. That's taken for granted they're going to win it. They've got half the bikes on the grid. So, you know, they've got a bit of an advantage to try and do that. But Paco, uh, Paco and Bastianini, Miller, whoever you want to look at, their job isn't to make sure that they stay out of each other's way. It's that they win the championship because Ducati haven't been able to manage things. Gigi's done a bad job. He's a great engineer, but he clearly hasn't done the job that he's supposed to do, which is win the championships. Now you have a situation where Bastianini's in there, still very much in contention on the basis of one more bad weekend for Quattararo or Pecco, and suddenly he's within a race of winning the championship. Bastianini didn't make a dangerous move. If he had it clattered into the side of Pecco Bagnaia, then it's a very different argument. Yeah. But he didn't. He put Paco in a position where if Paco had crashed, it was all Paco's fault. Trying to chase him down on the last lap, trying to do this, that and the other. I thought Bastianini did what he had to do. He didn't do a dirty move. He didn't do anything that was untoward. He just put himself in a position to win that race. So I, I, I think that for Ducati, yeah, fair enough. If Ducati had gone down and said, right, if you're sitting behind Paco, don't overtake him. But it's a bit early in the season for that as well. I think like we've still got five races to go. There's a lot of running still to to happen this season. And Bastianini hasn't really made too many big racecraft errors over the last couple of years either. So you almost have to trust him. They've hired him for a reason as well. So they do trust him. But uh, this is one of those situations where if it comes back to bike Ducati, that's not Bastianini's fault. That's Ducati's fault. Uh, just looking at Bastianini, 48 points back now. Um, he was playing down his chances of the championship. Um, just looking at the next couple of races coming up, the next four races, he's obviously not ridden um, on a MotoGP machine. And the last time he was there, the only time he was there in Thailand, Japan, Australia, and Malaysia on a Moto2 bike, his results were 11th, 7th, 17th, and 24th. Um, so, I mean, it's a huge ask. However, I guess... Back in 2019, he was recovering from an ankle injury that he sustained in Austria. And that season, he also finished 24th at Aragon. So, you know, that wasn't necessarily a good form guide for what he's done uh, this year in a MotoGP machine. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that he can he can be fighting up there in the likes of, of Thailand, Japan in the next uh, in the next two weeks. And if he can be on the podium there and uh, make up ground on Banyaya and Quattaro for the next two races, I, I am inclined to believe that he is still a, a player in this title fight. But also, I think, um, you know, Bagnaia is going to need all the help he can get because Quattararo is probably going to win in Phillip Island. He'll probably win in Sepang. 
uh, you know, the, this is going to go right down to Valencia. So I think now, uh, okay, I think you have to give Bastianini, um, you know, Aragon on the strength that, you know, he was close but didn't make a move in Mizano, like I said. But now I think, you know, much to Dave's uh, disgust, you know, there has, can, there has to be some sort of overall strategy from Ducati. Um, and, you know, I don't think you can blame Delinga so much, Steve, for, in terms of not bringing Ducati the championship yet. I mean, it's the whole football manager syndrome, isn't it? I mean, you can put the team on the field, but you can't score the goals for them. Uh, so it's... Yeah, but the manager gets sacked uh, <laughs> as well. With a sizable payoff. So... <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. But, well, uh... don't get me wrong. Gigi will certainly get a sizable payoff <laughs> if he's sacked. But it is one of those situations where the manager's job is to set the tactics sign the players, line everyone up, get them in a position to do the job. Over a 38-game season in, in, in a league, the table doesn't lie. Yeah. Over four or five years, the table certainly doesn't lie. You look at Ducati over the last five years, Yeah, there's got to be big questions to be asked. Like Fair enough, there's a couple of those seasons you're up against Mark Marquez. You're not beating Mark because Mark's the best we've ever seen. But we've also had a few years where it hasn't been marked there. Ducati's had a bike advantage and haven't been able to make a count. And that eventually has to fall on someone's shoulders. And Gigi's the high-profile man. He's the guy that gets all the credit for making the bike great. So I, but, it's his job yeah, to make sure they that, win the championship. And with five races to go, I think if there's a Ducati duel again for a win or maximum points, then you'll see some sort of strategy come into play. It has to happen, I think necessary faster that's the only thing i'm going to say i mean it, 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 yes yes there is a responsibility that lies with pekka Banyai to win necessary faster necessary ad break so <laughs> when we come back we'll continue to talk about the aragon grand prix and some of the other non-ducati topics Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. So we've looked at Ducati. We've uh, had a, a chat about some of our big moments of the weekend. But Adam, what's your big talking point from the weekend? What's the one thing that you want to get your teeth into? Unfortunately, well, obviously, actually, you got your teeth into team orders there as well. But <laughs> a second thing for you. Well, it's, it's another kind of discussion point, really, Steve. I don't think any of us can have any different opinions on what we saw in the Moto3 class. Um, also, probably... Arguably one of MotoGP's most watched social media clips when um, Adrian Fernandez was uh, somewhat abruptly halted by members of the Sterile Guard and Max Husqvarna team when he was uh, getting ready to go out, I think, on Q in Q2. Uh, so it was um, bizarre scenes, utterly bizarre. I mean, we've seen two different angles as well. Uh, when one team's mechanics are stopping another team's rider from exiting the, the, the pit lane, uh, you know... As with anything you see on social media, there's always some kind of context missing. Um, you know, for example, Adrian Fernandez used to ride for the Husqvarna team last year. So you imagine there's probably no uh, long-lasting favorable relationship there, uh, clearly by the actions of his former mechanics. Uh, you know, as well, I think, you know, Fernandez had been either tagging along with uh, either Yumo Sasaki or John McPhee in previous sessions. But uh, I think it, it staggered a lot of people and the subsequent punishments handed out to the Husqvarna mechanics missing two races and having a fine. Uh, it certainly was a punishment that, that fit the crime there. But it does show there's all sorts of little skullduggery that goes on, you know, behind the scenes in MotoGP. It's all not quite so ordered and shiny and lovely as you'd think. Well, I have to say, Skullduggery is putting it a bit lightly because this was ridiculous. It was so blatant as well. And like you said, Adam, none of us are going to have any dissenting views on it. This was this was a, a ridiculous situation and rightly was punished a two-race ban for the mechanics. Obviously, that gets pushed back a couple of weeks as well because they have to make sure that everyone's able to get to Japan and the bikes are able to operate safely. But yeah, this was a very well-deserved penalty for the two mechanics. And it was interesting that it sounds like one of the technicians, I don't think it was one of the two mechanics that we saw in the video blocking Adrian Fernandez, but apparently there was another one um, from Max Racing who was given it a bit of uh, a bit of lip when some of the Tech 3 mechanics came out to basically tell them to do one. 
Um, I think uh, some retribution was visited upon him on Saturday night by one of the Fernandez clan, which uh, adds further spice to the the story um, and shows you that um, you cross the, the Fernandez clan at your peril. Yeah, I mean, this was clearly something which happened. I mean, it had nothing to do with what was going on on track. This is an old vendetta um, that's been going on for a while because, uh, as we were saying, you know, Raul, of, uh, sorry, Adrian was was riding for the Sterile Guard team last year. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Fernandez family are not particularly loved in uh, in, in the paddock. The, the, the father, like many uh, rider fathers, uh, is a bit of a nightmare. Um, and, you know, Raul himself, if Raul, I mean, Raul Fernandez is incredibly talented and it's a good job he is uh, because he's not particularly loved by anyone in, in any team he's ridden for either because he just, um, he's, just an unpleasant young man. He doesn't, um, you know, he, he doesn't smile. He doesn't help. He doesn't cooperate. He doesn't work with anyone. He doesn't do. Uh, uh, he, he's not. You know, he, he everything he does, he seems to do grudgingly. Um, he doesn't thank his mechanics. He's the opposite of Brad Binder, as you were saying. Ed. Like Brad Binder comes in, works with his team, um, helps his team. Fabio Quattararo as well. It's Fabio Quattararo who starts his bike up. He's always uh, always in the garage. Pedro Acosta as well. You know, like uh, I, I was walking past the garage and, and he's there. Sort of chatting with his mechanics and being, being, you know, that they understand how to build a team. And this was the, the Fernandez brothers seem to be the opposite. They understand how to destroy a team. Uh, and this, I think, was just an old um, anger and um, yeah, dispute sort of you know boiling over onto onto the track. And it should never have come that far. And it, it was absolutely disgraceful that these. Um, uh, that these mechanics did what they did at that point. There were much better ways. I mean, there would have been, you know, much better trying to run him over in the car park afterwards or something. But um, <laughs> this, uh, this was, yeah, this was unacceptable. I am. Um, I don't uh, know. The Paddock Pass podcast doesn't uh, actually um, endorse. Doesn't, right. uh, I'm not saying. I'm not that. saying they should. In the, in I'm the saying park, that Dave. they could have, and it would have got away, got away with it. <clears throat> Yeah, we don't condone any uh, any violence, any kind of runnings over in the car park at all, do we? Uh, yes, none of that sh- none of those shena- shenanigans. But um, I'm I'm a little uh, puzzled by what to make of Adrian Fernandez because uh, he's undoubtedly there. Uh, he has that Tech Three saddle thanks to his brother. Um, you know, he hasn't particularly torn Moto Three apart. But then in Aragon, yeah. I think we see he took his his best result of the season. So there's clearly some sort of motorcycle racer or some sort of ability inside there. But um, goodness, he even looks completely like his older brother. So it's just a bit. Uh, how, how do we go about separating them? And um, it's uh, a strange, a strange uh, situation. I'm not even sure if Fernandez is going to be part of Tech Three, uh, Red Bull KTM Tech Three next year. So it's. He's not. Confirmed. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. And I, I spoke to someone or some people in the, the Max Racing team on Saturday night, and they were telling me that it's not just like he's disliked there, he is really disliked. In fact, the word even stronger than disliked was used to describe how he is regarded. So um, I don't think he, he won many friends or made many friends there last year. And um, well, KTM haven't hired him for next year in the Moto3 team either. So. Um, Looks like he didn't make many friends in Tech Three either. Well, he's lost his uh, he's lost his meal ticket because um, uh, Raul has moved on to uh, Aprilia and Aprilia aren't racing in Moto Three. Yeah, and I think it's one of those situations. Ad, you mentioned about you know the the form that he's had, and even whenever he was coming up through the ranks in Junior GP, he was a very inconsistent rider. He'd have some weekends where he was very good, but a lot of the time he's quite sloppy, and he had a lot of penalties that pushed him on grid penalties or, or whatever that left him where you could see a lot of talent but he didn't get the end results that I think he probably warranted at different times in junior GP and that's kind of carried through into Moto3 as well as it is right now and you wait and see what happens from him he's clearly got a bit of talent but uh, it's not only just about the talent at that level and uh, that's something we see time and time again but uh, like you said at the very start of that topic there's not really going to be too much discussion about uh, the penalty or the incident because uh, I think everyone in the paddock was just disgusted by it. But Dave, what about you? What was your big talking point from the Aragon Grand Prix? Um, speaking of riders who are very good at building a team around them, uh, I mean, Mark Marquez came back 
um, long awaited. Everyone was really wanted to see what he could do, and we could we saw that he immediately had pace during practice and during qualifying. Um, it was obvious that you know he was very capable of of being fast. The only thing that we weren't sure about is what he could do in a race, um, how long he could last, and he'd been saving himself. He hadn't been doing, especially on Saturday, he hadn't been doing very many laps in a row uh, because he wanted to make sure that he sort of had enough strength in his arm. Um, and uh, it didn't last very long because what happened was Mark Marquez uh, had a really good start, got up to sixth, um, had a moment coming out of turn three. The rear sort of went as the, uh, the basically Bassinini was sort of right on the back of uh, Jack Miller, had to back off a little bit, and then uh, Alicia Spargaro bumped him a bit wide. And so... Um, the Marquez had to change his line, uh, to, uh, open the throttle a little bit. The rear sort of span up a little bit. Um, and Fabio Quartararo, who'd been right behind him, slammed into the back of him, uh, uh, crashed, had a really sort of quite a, a, quite a nasty crash. Uh, a bit of a fairing, a bit of Fabio Quartararo's fairing got stuck in the back of Marquez's bike and then when they came out of turn seven when he uh, applied his uh, ride out device and the back of the uh, the, the bike dropped and um, it locked that up and it forced him into Taka Nakagami who was trying to overtake him at that point and uh, Nakagami went down and um, it was just a really really messy it was a it was a messy start. Uh, Marcus got a lot of uh, he got a lot of flack after the incident from um, from from certainly from fans on social media. Um, but when you and certainly when you look at it, when you look at what uh, Mark did or whether. Well, the the incident with Nakagami, it really looked like the uh, market had leaned into Nakagami, and it wasn't until sort of afterwards, and when you look looked closely and looked at the uh, the images on in, in slow motion, you could see that there's something sticking out of the back of his bike that was forcing him to do uh, to do that. So um, I don't think it was deserved. It was it was just a racing incident. I think pretty much uh, even Lynn Jarvis was interviewed in the box with the uh, with uh, by Simon Crafer asked about the the you know the the incident with Marquez and um, Marquez Bay, uh, you know Jarvis said yeah we've looked at it a lot and, and it does look like a racing incident. It was sort of like reluctantly reluctantly admitting that yes it was a uh, a racing incident. Yeah, so yeah it was, it was just one of those things and it's also one of those things where. Um, Quattararo had a plan and he was trying to execute. He was trying to get, uh, he was trying to get around the outside of, um, uh, around the outside of Marcus, trying to carry speed through three to get a strong exit out of three towards four. Um, and because Marquez, uh, lost the rear a little bit, Quattararo was just basically, you know, he, for a start, he was unsighted because he's hanging off the other side of the bike, um, uh, loses the rear and it just slams into the back of it. There's nothing, nothing he could do about it. Yeah, I mean, full sympathy for Mark because, I mean, this also was one of the major highlights of the Grand Prix, wasn't it? I mean, it was an explosive sort of first minute of the, of, of the racing uh, of, the, of the 23 laps there. Uh, and the reason we didn't really talk about it at the top of the show is because we wanted to talk about it in the middle of the show. Uh, it just seems that, you know, Mark has an impact anywhere, doesn't he? Um, I've been writing a, a column for ontrackoffroad.com uh, this morning and... Uh, yeah, a rider like Johan Zarco summed it up quite nicely at the beginning of the weekend in his media debrief. He was saying how good it was to have Mark back, how he's such an influential rider and he's one of the most prominent racers in the MotoGP grid. But by the end of the weekend, uh, Zarco was one of the riders who was uh, not exactly sticking the knife in, but he was kind of hovering it over, you know, um, Marcus's throat. By sort of saying, you know, that Mark tends to make these things happen. Um, you know, he had admittedly not done more than five lap fast paced uh, runs uh, throughout the weekend. You know, Marquez was probably unlikely to figure in the running at the front for the full race duration. Uh, you know, you wouldn't begrudge him going aggressive in the first couple of laps and also wanting to perhaps lead or you know see how he could stretch his own pace i mean he's fully entitled to do whatever he wants to do with his own race um of course let's not forget that marquez really hasn't been in uh, a race scenario at full fitness for quite some time you know well over maybe two years so it's uh, there's also that factor to consider but uh yes yeah, so it was interesting just how people looked at it and kind of ended up shaking their heads thinking well this is marquez but um, I think it was, as Dave said, just a, a very unhappy uh, collision of incidents. And it happened to involve the Repsol Honda 93. 
Yeah, I mean, the it sort of highlights just incredibly how incredibly dangerous the starts that those first few corners are because everyone is trying to make up ground, uh, especially now where it is becoming increasingly difficult to pass. You have to make um, uh, make up ground at the start. So you're riding very, very close. You've got a lot of bikes very close together. Uh, Fabio Quattararo on Saturday said very clearly what his strategy was, you know, starting from six. He had to get a good start and he had to make up as much as many places as possible at the start of the race. So he didn't lose too many, uh, too many places so he was going to take a lot more risk anyway um and he got a, you know he got a he got an average start you know it wasn't a bad start but it wasn't a great start he was still in six by the time they came out of, uh, came out of turn two um in part because brad binder got such a fantastic start and also because uh mark has got a fantastic start uh like i didn't see i didn't see mark do anything wrong i mean if you really wanted to to blame some someone I mean, apart from the fact you know the, the tire was cold but if you really had to pick out someone to blame then maybe the the uh, honda electronics which we know are um quite edgy and so you know they tend to sort of it, it tends to be a bit to, it tends to be a bit sort of you know a, a bite or not and um the, the rear span up it, it bit and, uh, and that was it and fabio was just too close to avoid it yeah, I think for me, David, just when you mentioned about the dangers of lap one, I remember talking to Josh Brooks about this whenever he was doing the TT. And I said to him, you know, just about the, the dangers of road racing. And he said, never underestimate how dangerous it is on the first lap of a race into first corners. And Aragon has a lot of pinch points all the way around. Fabio got unlucky. I thought that Lynn Jarvis's reaction was quite telling whenever he just said, you know what, you qualify midfield. This is what happens. The problem isn't the single instant. It's the fact that you didn't get the job done in qualifying. We saw that with Fabio had a big moment through turn two at the end of Q2. And that was basically what put him into the mid-pack. And he had no chance really of, of a good result from there. And obviously, you don't think it's going to end as badly as it did for him. But this also showed just how quickly the championship can turn. And that goes back to what we were talking about with Bastianini and the Ducati team orders. All it takes is one instant and suddenly a rider has an injury, they're missing around, suddenly 48 points for Bastianini can be 23 points overnight. It can be even closer after a couple of rounds in the flyaways, and that's where you can't take anything for granted in racing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good point that, uh, you know, things do change. You know, five five races is still a lot. I mean, you know, I was looking at Luca Marini in 12th. He's 120 points behind um, um, Fabio Quattararo, so he is not mathematically... Uh, ruled out of the championship, as are the other 11 riders ahead of him. Now, I mean, it's almost impossible, uh, but not completely, not mathematically impossible. Um, uh, but yeah, that first corner, as you say, that, that, that first part of the, uh, of the of the Aragon track is really tricky and it's caught a lot of riders out. It's where, for example, uh, Jorge Lorenzo's uh, run at Ducati sort of really ran out when he got um, uh, bumped off the track there going into turn one. Um, and came off injured his ankle, if I remember correctly, and he'd been winning races, and then all of a sudden it all sort of went a bit wrong uh, after that. So yeah, it's just it's a really difficult part of the part of the track, and it's a really dangerous moment. Don't forget, also Dave, turn two was where Maverick Vinales crashed. That turned his weekend around. It was also his first crash of the season, unbelievably, on the Aprilia um, during during free practice. And then um, I think it was Jack Miller who was telling us that the the way the pack funnels into turn one, turn two, you know, it's incredibly tight. And in fact, he seemed to kind of insinuate that there's it's strange that there's not more accidents or incidents there. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of racetracks on the MotoGP calendar where we do have a very tight first turn. I mean, somewhere like Jerez is always tricky. Uh, Cotter is, you know, t notorious, a charge up into a, almost a, a hairpin switchback left-hander. Uh, so it's not like the riders unaccustomed to tackling tight first corners, but Aragon is always a little bit tricky. It's, it's very bus stoppy. Yeah, I remember actually, turn two is an interesting one as well, uh, because I remember a few years ago, I saw one MotoGP rider grab a younger rider at the end of a qualifying session and just say never do what you did at the end of qualifying and the young rider was there thinking wait what did i do what did i do and the MotoGP rider said you finished your lap and you cruised around the outside of turn two never do that there when you when you're slowing down slow down from the exit of two onwards because you're always liable for someone to come down the inside of you and lose the front through turn two 
and that'll be your weekend done and it's no fault of your own except you you did the wrong thing you were you were foolish to roll off too early you have to get up the hill and then start to slow down and i think that's one of the things with aragon where there's a lot of places there and i remember talking to Chaz davis absolute aragon specialist in superbikes and he just talked so much about how turn one dictates everything all the way up to turn six and Aragon's all about piecing all those corners together, and that's the big challenge of it. Yeah, and especially like turn two and turn three are uh, right-handers. They're the first right-handers are for a long time. The the last right-hander is turn fourteen, which is uh, probably getting on for two kilometres away. So you know it's almost half the track distance. Uh, you know, well over a third of the track distance. Uh, that's a lot of time for the for the right side of the tire to cool off. And at the start of the race, also, you know, the the, the right side of the tire is is not completely up to it, it's not completely operating temperature um it, despite the fact that it's much softer on that side so yeah it's really uh, it that part of the track is really really difficult well i'll tell you what let's get uh on through to the end of our aragon recap we're still going to have a little break and then come back to talk about motegi as well but let's move on to our winners and losers from the weekend so alphabetical order Adam, who's your big winner from the weekend? Uh, let's just Bargaro, Steve. Uh, Ten round. Uh, that's also in alphabetical order, then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, two crashes, carrying slight injuries, as we've seen. Uh, he's had a couple of offs, broken finger. Um, he's also had to deal with a fractured heel. Uh, he came to Aragon, you know, pretty much like you said with Chaz, something of a motorland specialist. Has a great feeling there. Was expecting to win. Um, even though he downplays the pressure quite well. I mean, Alesha always talks a brilliant game in MotoGP by saying that, um, you know, it was only a while ago that they were celebrating six like a victory. So, yeah, I think Alesha Spogaro had a, had a great race. Um, you know, managed to pit Brad Binder when he needed to. Binder just making a couple of small mistakes just two laps before the end and uh, Spogaro managed to take advantage and that was his first podium finish, I think, in six. So it keeps him just in the title hunt. Yeah, really important. 17 points back. So it sets up nicely for the flyaways. David, what about you? Who was your big winner from the Aragon Grand Prix? I think my big winner from the Aragon Grand Prix was is Enea Bastianini because he uh, won the race. Uh, he beat his teammate next year. Tola showed him what's what and pointed out, you know, who's, who's going to be in, in charge in 2023. Um, and he just rode a fantastic race. He rode, a, you know, an absolutely near perfect race. You're such an anarchist, Dave. <laughs> I am, actually, yes. <laughs> what about you, Neil? Who was your big winner? Um, I mean, I think you, you'd be hard-pressed to look past Brad Binder for his performance in sixth. Um, Alicia Spargo, after the, the race, was saying how he really felt Brad was one of the, the top three riders currently racing in MotoGP at the moment. Um, he was pretty much faultless right the way um, from, I think, lap one to 21 didn't uh, really make a mistake or give Aleish or, or Jack an opportunity to, to get by him at all. Um, he actually said towards the end, he switched engine maps to try and give him a little bit more, but that almost unsettled the bike a bit and made it a bit twitchy. Um, and uh, Espargo was able to get the drive out of the final turn to pass him into the, the first turn on the penultimate lap. And um, Binder said he then switched back to the map he was previously on and that allowed him to be a bit smoother, a bit uh, a bit faster again. So um, that small little thing just prevented him from from getting a podium. But uh, I think overall, um, it was uh, it was a fine performance. And I mean, yet again, I think we've, we've said this constantly through the year, but yet again, Brad is kind of almost kept getting KTM out of jail, if you like, because without him, they would be so, so, they would, you know, the results would be so bad, really, so, so underwhelming. Um, and I think Brad is kind of keeping that, uh, that ship afloat you can actually see on the data or, uh, or in the lap times when he switches. You know, the last co a couple of laps, I think like 21 and 22, uh, he's doing, uh, he loses basically three tenths of a second in in, in his lap time. Uh, and then he switches back again and he's really, really fast. So it's, it's quite interesting that you can actually see that. Yeah, and he lost the podium by only two tenths. So that was it there, Dave. Yeah, I think they're all fair enough. I think for me, my big winner was Izan Guevara. And uh, we talked about it at the top of the show with Adam's moment of the weekend. But I think holding a 33-point lead going into the flyaways, I think this was a really good weekend for Izan. And uh, like Adam said, a really, really strong performance all the way through. A lot faster than last year. So I'm excited to see how the flyaways goes for Izan. Um, Neil, let's come to you first then for your loser of the weekend. Who was your big loser? 
it was, um, I think I'm going to say Jorge Martin, Steve. Like, I mean, he, he did have a decent race and uh, there was a, a four-rider fight that um, he was at the head off at the end of the race in sixth with uh, Zarco, Rins and uh, Marini were also in there. So he did all right to finish at the front of that. Um, but uh, I just think there's no point really recently where we've looked at Martin and thought, uh, yeah, Ducati have made the wrong move. Um, you know, Bastianini is, is comfortably outperforming him at the moment. And um, yeah, he just doesn't really look like anywhere near the kind of uh, the golden boy that we saw last year that people were sort of predicting to go on and, and maybe fight for MotoGP titles. Um, he was 12 seconds off the, the victor. Um, and some of his comments over the weekend just indicate that there's a real, uh, I wouldn't say anger, but definitely a bitterness that um, he was passed over for the factory seat next year. Um, he was talked about or he was talking about, um, you know, how they've how they've managed that inter-team fight and how he didn't think that was a good idea. Um, he also was asked about what um, direction he was putting or he was advising Ducati to take next year. And he said something along the lines of, you know, yeah, we get to test a lot of new things in Pramac, but uh, they don't really listen to us. So, you know, we're just here to test essentially, which doesn't... Um, doesn't necessarily speak of a, a rider entirely content with the surroundings. Um, and then he was only kind of too happy to talk up the, the kind of chaos that was going on behind the scenes when Francesco Guidotti, the, the team manager, left for KTM at the end of last year. And um, KT, uh, Pramac didn't really successfully replace him. It looks like Gino Borsoi uh, will move from Aspar uh, over to, uh, to Pramac Racing next year. And um, yeah, Martin was saying that that was pretty necessary. So yeah, I think just um, it's quite clear that he's he's still a bit upset. That's still affecting him. And um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see him looking to move away from Ducati um, sometime next year. Yeah, for 2024. Yeah. Yeah, Jorge Martin is a bit of, again, a strange character like I was talking about with somebody like Adrian Fernandez. You don't really know what to make of him. Um, he can be quite sort of sulky, sullen, uh, you know, kind of arrogant. If you see the presentation of this guy on something like MotoGP Unlimited, then, you know, he seems quite humble, quite uh, down to earth. But it's not often the, the, the character that comes across, especially in his dealings with us. Um, so I don't, he could very easily fall into a bit of an Ian only villain type role, I think, um, just in terms of attitude. I mean, I know he signed a deal with KTM and he was very prepared to go through their whole talent sort of filter. But then quickly after, you know, just one year in Moto2, he didn't want to stick around um, in that particular team anymore. And like Neil says, is how long is his patience going to last with Ducati? Um, and I just think, again, you have to be careful. Uh, if you have a reputation of, um, a real lack of patience, a real lack of awareness of needing to get all the ingredients around you to, to guarantee success, then, you know, you're not going to last long in MotoGP. Yeah, and I think just listen to what Neil was talking about there as well, it also kind of ties in a little bit with what I was saying earlier about Ducati and Gigi. If you've got a rider like that, they're just using them just as test mules. They're just saying, just get the data. They're not actually giving them the control over developing things because for Ducati and for Gigi, it seems that the bike will always be the winner rather than the the actual rider. And I think that's probably one of those situations that Jorge Martin's going to find himself going forward. But uh, David, what about you? Who was your big loser of the weekend? Uh, my big loser of the weekend is uh, Maverick Vinales. Um, I mean, you know, in part, there was not... Uh, well, there was not a lot he could have had, uh, he could do about it. He got stuck behind. But going into the weekend, he was telling us how he was going to win the race. Now he felt really, really confident, really strong. Uh, and he did show sort of, you know, decent pace from time to time. But he, he you know, he had a crash, uh, his first of the weekend or the first of the first of the season, sorry. Um, uh, qualified poorly, ended up, got caught up behind the two incidents on the first lap, uh, ended up finishing, what is it, 12th, I think, um, a 13th, um, you know, made his way forward a little bit, but still, it was just, uh, it was not the weekend that he hoped for. He was still quite, after after the race, he was still quite positive. He was very, you know, quite chipper and quite cheerful. That at least is a good thing, uh, but it was just not the weekend that he was hoping for. And what about you, Adam? Who was your loser? Uh, quite obviously, Steve Takanakagami. Uh, it was a track where he took pole position a couple of years ago. Uh, it's always been one of his favorite circuits. And then, you know, his collision with Mark left him with another visit to surgery in Barcelona with Dr. Mir. 
Uh, we um, originally heard that he was going to have a bit of a skin graft on several of his fingers. It's now turned out to be just, um, I think, a tidy up around the tendons on the fourth and fifth finger. So he's going to be fit for his home Grand Prix. And it was a weekend where it was kind of bittersweet for Tacker because he had confirmed, obviously, another year in MotoGP um you know on the honda but then you know didn't get to finish a lap of the race so uh yeah better luck next time tacker yeah i think that's fair enough i think for me but my big loser either quattro or yamaha or both because fabio obviously misses out in a lot of points brings everything down a lot closer in the championship only 10 points between himself and peco for yamaha Again, we got to see that uh, for Franco Morbidelli, I qualified out raced by Cal Crutchlow jumping onto the bike. Binder as well, uh, struggling at the weekend. So this just showed again just how dependent Yamaha are on Fabio and a weekend like this just uh, brings that to the fore whenever you have a lap one crash and suddenly you see that none of the other Yamahas are really anywhere. Um, we're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we're going to have a quick look ahead to the Japanese Grand Prix. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Adam, the Motul Grand Prix of Japan. This is a much easier one to pronounce for me <laughs> rather than any of the well other done, ones. Stevie, um, you took the risk there. What? What? Oh, I, I went all out for that. You know, um, what are you thinking for this weekend? Obviously, uh, Motegi is always a bit of a, a strange track, very high on fuel consumption. We've seen riders run out of fuel. We've seen lots of issues in the past. This is always an interesting round, a very unique track, obviously built into an oval. There's a lot around Motegi that's a little bit different than everything else. Yeah, I mean, also, Steve, another important factor to remember, like Dave was asking quite a few of the riders uh, in debriefs over the weekend in Aragon, is that you know, it's the first time we've been there since 2019, and there's quite a large segment of the grid that haven't ridden a MotoGP bike, uh, Brad Binder being one of them, for example, at Motegi. So it is kind of a clean slate for a lot of riders. Um, we actually asked Brad about this on Sunday after the race because uh you know when you you go to a new track he's not in the same he explained that he's not in the same situation like he was in his rookie season in 2020 because uh he you know obviously knows much more about setting up the rc16 he knows how the bike much more intimately uh he knows the track he's raced there so it's a case of just putting that all together as quick as he can whereas when you are a motor gp rookie you spend a, a large chunk of fp1 and fp2 just trying to work out your braking markers your setup whatever else so it's um it's going to be a, a period of acclimatization which is not going to be assisted further by the adjusted time schedule uh, of course, it was. Um, it's something that hasn't really been explained. I guess as journalists, we really should have got to the bottom of the matter as to why MotoGP is scampering from Spain all the way to you know Japan in the in the space of one week. Further complicated by the after effects of uh, the typhoon that had um, quite a few people talking on Sunday in Motorland about a possible postponement of the Grand Prix or a cancellation even because you know Jap Japan was on national alert. You know, I think there were millions of people evacuated from their homes, so it's uh, it was somewhat unrealistic to expect a motorsport event to go ahead but thankfully it seems to have passed over and um motor gp will take place in japan in usually temperate chilly and rainy conditions i, I gather but uh it, it's good it's cool to go back to a circuit that we haven't been to in a while uh mark marcus was the last winner there he's obviously not going to be fighting really for victory this time uh you know adovi i think was on the podium uh, and quattararo which you know bodes well you know i said quattararo will probably win in fila pilot and sepang but he's he's obviously going to be competitive here at a track that's very uh, notorious for for being hard braking, hard accelerating, not exactly playing to the strengths of the M1, but um, the Frenchman is particularly apt at this venue. Uh, I mean, you, why are we why are we flying from Aragon to Motegi? Mostly because it's actually really difficult to put a calendar together. You've got so many things to uh, take account of. You've got to. Um, uh, plan when the free weekends are at particular races. You've got to try and not clash with F1 um, whenever possible, which basically means if you're racing on the same weekend, you really want to be on a different continent or at least a different time zone. Um, uh, and they have a lot of races to, to, to sort of jam into the end of the season. So uh, I think this one is 
in particular is a bit of a, a poor decision uh, because we won't have any uh, action on Friday morning. Um, it looks like all of the freight, I mean, you know, speaking Tuesday lunchtime, it looks like all of the freight is going to get there on time so we won't lose Friday altogether. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a bit strange. And this is, I think, one of the most important things to remember here is that this is a track which is firstly very, very, very heavy on fuel. Uh, that immediately takes away the advantage of the Ducati. I mean, you know, the Ducatis will be fast. They'll end up on pole because then they can just like squirt, you know, dump all 22 litres into a single lap uh, almost. Um, but over race distance, they've got to really lean everything out. It means they're cutting a lot of power uh, and that brings everything back in. It's really heavy uh, on braking. Mategi is one of the one of the tracks where they use the, either the, the, I think the use of the 355s now, 355 millimeter uh, brake discs is now uh, compulsory because um, that braking really loads the, uh, loads the front. Uh, braking is going to be very important. Being able to brake and carry corner speed uh, in, into a couple of those corners. Um, it's very, it's very open. And you know, Peko. It wasn't a great track for Peko when he was here. I think it's a better track for for for, for Fabio. Uh, but the, I, and I think the way that the Ducati has changed. Um, between 2019 and 2022 doesn't help the uh, the Ducati either. So I think I think it's going to be a much much more open race than it has been previously. I think also it looks like it's going to be pretty wet on Friday when we do have that one session on Friday afternoon. It'll probably be in the rain. Um, Saturday looks as though it's going to be pretty wet as well. Um, so we could well have a situation where. Um, several of the guys on the grid are going into the MotoGP race on Sunday with um, basically next to no um, track time, dry track time on a MotoGP bike at Motegi. Um, and that in those kind of situations, you think that um, that Yamaha and Fabio are usually very fast straight out the box and then the others kind of spend the weekend catching up to them. You think back to Portimao where um, I think both Friday, Saturday, maybe even Sunday morning, were rain-affected. And um, there was no setup time, and Fabio just put a sentence in from last year, and they you know, they worked a treat. He ran out a dominant winner. Um, obviously, we haven't been to Motegi since 2019, um, but as Ad was saying, the Yamaha was working pretty well here back then. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of wide open in a way. Um, you can never really predict too many things, but I think the circumstances and the, the conditions that we might have over the weekend, if Fabio can qualify well, in the wet, say we have a wet session, then I think um, that could set him up nicely for Sunday. Yeah, you can never predict too much, but I will make one bold prediction. Dave, if you think throwing in 20 kilos of extra fuel is going to still give you a pole time, you're never going to be a MotoGP crew chief. So you're going to just have to stick to being the journal. But uh, I think Motegi's looking like it should be quite an interesting weekend. I, I'm looking forward to it. Adam, obviously, you've already mentioned it. You're straight out to America to get to motocross the nation. So we won't have you on for the Patreon show throughout the course of the weekend. I'm obviously in uh, Catalonia this weekend for World Superbike. So it'll be David and Neil bringing you the Paddock Notes show throughout the course of the weekend. But make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast to sign up for that for ten dollars a month you're able to get all the latest news over each day of a grand prix weekend and that's where you know the team get together and we we go to the debriefs and then immediately record a show 15 20 minutes long just to be able to get everyone up to speed all the way through the weekend so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast be sure to drop us a message at paddock pass pod on twitter and if you have any questions over the weekend we'll obviously endeavor to get them answered during the course of our paddock notes show but uh, from all of us here it's uh, been a lot of fun looking back to aragon we're looking forward to the flyaways big thanks to Renthal Street and to Fly Racing for supporting the podcast. A big thank you to everyone for listening to this show as well. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. You are wrong, though, Ed. <laughs>
Hey, but it's good good discussion. It was a very good discussion, but uh, just 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 as long as you realise you're wrong, that's the only thing that matters. Some, some people think you know, Bastian, you should have moved over, and other people.